0: chapter 21 c of the everyday life of abraham lincoln this librivox recording is in the public domain the everyday life of abraham lincoln by francis fisher brown chapter 21 c preparation for the final act the emancipation proclamation particulars of the great document fate of the original draft lincoln's outline of his course and views regarding slavery The special cabinet meeting, to which Lincoln here refers, was one of uncommon interest even in that day of heroic things. An account of it is given by Secretary Wells, who was present. At the cabinet meeting of September 22nd, says Mr. Wells in his diary, the special subject was the proclamation for emancipating the slaves after a certain date, in states that shall then be in rebellion. For several weeks the subject has been suspended but the President says never lost sight of. In taking up the proclamation, the President stated that the question was finally decided, the Act and the consequences were his, but that he felt it due to us to make us acquainted with the fact, and to invite criticism on the paper which he had prepared. There were, he had found, not unexpectedly, some differences in the Cabinet, but he had, after ascertaining in his own way the views of each and all, individually and collectively, formed his own conclusions, and made his own decisions. In the course of the discussion on this paper, which was long, earnest, and, on the general principle involved, harmonious, he remarked that he had made a vow, a covenant, that if God gave us the victory in the approaching battle he would consider it an indication of divine will, and that it was his duty to move forward in the cause of emancipation. It might be thought strange, he said, that he had in this way submitted to the disposal of important matters when the way was not clear to his mind what he should do. God had decided his questions in favor of the slaves. He was satisfied it was right, and he was confirmed and strengthened in his action by the vow and the results. His mind was fixed, his decision made, but he wished his paper announcing his course to be as correct in terms as it could be made without any change in his determination. He read the document. One or two unimportant amendments suggested by Seward were approved. It was then handed to the Secretary of State to publish to-morrow. The discussion of emancipation brought up at once the problem of what should be done with the freed Negroes. The very next day, after the preliminary proclamation was issued, September twenty-third, 1862, the President presented the matter to the assembled cabinet. Deportation was considered and some of those present urged that this should be compulsory the president however would not consider this the emigration of the negroes he said must be voluntary and without expense to themselves it was proposed to deport the freedmen to costa rica where a large tract of land known as the chiriqui grant had been obtained from the government of central america lincoln favored this in a general way He thought it essential to provide an asylum for a race which we had emancipated, but which could never be recognized or admitted to be our equals," says Mr. Wells. But there was some doubt as to the validity of the title to the Costa Rica lands, and the matter was dropped. In his second annual message to Congress, transmitted to that body in December 1862, Lincoln touched, in conclusion, upon the great subject of emancipation in these words of deep import i do not forget the gravity which should characterize a paper addressed to the congress of the nation by the chief magistrate of the nation nor do i forget that some of you are my seniors nor that many of you have more experience than i in the conduct of public affairs yet i trust that in view of the great responsibility resting upon me you will perceive no want of respect to yourselves in any undue earnestness i may seem to display The dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. The occasion is piled high with difficulty, and we must rise with the occasion. As our case is new, so must we think anew, and act anew. Fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. We of this Congress, and this Administration, will be remembered in spite of ourselves. No personal significance or insignificance can spare one or another of us. The fiery trial through which we pass will light us down, in honor or dishonor, to the latest generation. We say we are for the Union. The world will not forget that we say this. We know how to save the Union. The world knows we do know how to save it. We, even we here, hold the power and bear the responsibility. In giving freedom to the slave we assure freedom to the free. Honourable alike in what we give and what we preserve. We shall nobly save, or meanly lose, the last best hope of earth. Other means may succeed, this could not fail. The way is plain, peaceful, generous, just. A way which, if followed, the world will forever applaud, and God must forever bless. An immense concourse attended the reception at the White House on the first day of 1863, and the president stood for several hours shaking hands with the endless train of men and women who pressed forward to greet him the exhausting ceremonial being ended the proclamation which finally and forever abrogated the institution of slavery in the united states was handed to him for his signature mr seward remarked the president i have been shaking hands all day and my right hand is almost paralyzed if my name ever gets into history It will be for this act, and my whole soul is in it. If my hand trembles when I sign the proclamation, those who examine the document hereafter will say I hesitated. Then, resting his arm a moment, he turned to the table, took up the pen, and slowly and firmly wrote, Abraham Lincoln. He smiled as, handing the paper to Mr. Seward, he said, That will do. A few hours after, he remarked, The signature looks a little tremulous, for my hand was tired, but my resolution was firm. I told them in September that if they did not return to their allegiance, I would strike at this pillar of their strength. And now the promise shall be kept, and not one word of it will I ever recall. The text of the Great Emancipation Proclamation is as follows. Whereas on the twenty-second day of September in the year of our lord one thousand eight hundred and sixty two a proclamation was issued by the president of the united states containing among other things the following to wit that on the first day of january in the year of our lord one thousand eight hundred and sixty three all persons held as slaves within any states or designated part of a state the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the united states shall be then, thenceforward and forever, free, and the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authority thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of such persons, and will do no act or acts to repress such persons, or any of them, in any efforts they may make for their actual freedom." that the executive will, on the first day of January aforesaid by proclamation, designate the states and parts of states, if any, in which the people thereof respectively shall then be in rebellion against the United States, and the fact that any state or the people thereof shall on that day be in good faith represented in the Congress of the United States, by members chosen thereto at elections wherein a majority of the qualified voters of such state shall have participated shall in the absence of strong countervailing testimony be deemed conclusive evidence that such state and the people thereof are not then in rebellion against the united states now therefore i abraham lincoln president of the united states by virtue of the power in me vested as commander-in-chief of the army and navy of the united states in time of actual armed rebellion against the authority and government of the united states and as a fit and necessary war measure for suppressing said rebellion do on this first day of january in the year of our lord one thousand eight hundred and sixty-three and in accordance with my purpose to do so publicly proclaimed for the full period of one hundred days from the day first above mentioned order and designate as the states and parts of states wherein the people thereof respectively are this day in rebellion against the united states the following, to wit, Arkansas, Texas, Louisiana, except the parishes of St. Bernard, Plaquemine, Jefferson, St. John, St. Charles, St. James, Ascension, Assumption, Terrebonne, Fourche, St. Marie, St. Martin, and Orléans, including the city of New Orleans, Mississippi, Alabama, florida georgia south carolina north carolina and virginia except the forty-eight counties designated as west virginia and also the counties of berkeley acomac northampton elizabeth city york princess anne and norfolk including the cities of norfolk and portsmouth and which accepted parts are for the present left precisely as if this proclamation were not issued and by virtue of the power and for the purpose aforesaid i do order and declare that all persons held as slaves within said designated states and parts of states are and henceforward shall be free and that the executive government of the united states including the military and naval authorities thereof will recognize and maintain the freedom of said persons and i hereby enjoin upon the people so declared to be free to abstain from all violence unless in necessary self-defence and i recommend to them that in all cases when allowed they labor faithfully for reasonable wages and i further declare and make known that such persons of suitable condition will be received into the armed service of the united states to garrison forts positions stations and other places and to man vessels of all sorts in said service. And upon this act, sincerely believed to be an act of justice, warranted by the Constitution upon military necessity, I invoke the considerate judgment of mankind and the gracious favor of Almighty God. In testimony whereof I have hereunto set my name, and caused the seal of the United States to be affixed. Done at the city of Washington this first day of January, IN THE YEAR OF OUR LORD, 1863, AND OF THE INDEPENDENCE OF THE UNITED STATES, THE EIGHTY-SEVENTH. BY THE PRESIDENT Abraham Lincoln William H. Seward, Secretary of State It is stated that Lincoln gave the most earnest study to the composition of the Emancipation Proclamation. He realized, as he afterwards said, that the proclamation was the central act of his administration and the great event of the nineteenth century. When the document was completed, a printed copy of it was placed in the hands of each member of the cabinet, and criticisms and suggestions were invited. Mr. Chase remarked, This paper is of the utmost importance, greater than any State paper ever made by this Government. A paper of so much importance, and involving the liberties of so many people, ought, I think, to make some reference to Deity. I do not observe anything of the kind in it." Lincoln said, "'No, I overlooked it. Some reference to Deity must be inserted. Mr. Chase, won't you make a draft of what you think ought to be inserted?' Mr. Chase promised to do so, and at the next meeting presented the following, "'And upon this act, sincerely believed to be an act of justice, warranted by the Constitution, upon military necessity, I invoke the considerate judgment of mankind, and the gracious favor of Almighty God. When Lincoln read the paragraph, Mr. Chase said, You may not approve it, but I thought this or something like it would be appropriate. Lincoln replied, I do approve it. It cannot be bettered, and I will adopt it in the very words you have written. To a large concourse of people who, two days after the proclamation was issued, assembled before the White House, with music, the President said, "'What I did, I did after a very full deliberation, and under a heavy and solemn sense of responsibility. I can only trust in God I have made no mistake.' That he realized, to the full gravity of the step before taking it, is shown again in an incident related by Honorable John Covod who calling on the President a few days before the issue of the final proclamation, found him walking his room in considerable agitation. Reference being made to the forthcoming proclamation, Lincoln said with great earnestness, "'I have studied that matter well. My mind is made up. It must be done. I am driven to it. There is to me no other way out of our troubles. But although my duty is plain, it is in some respects painful and I trust the people will understand that I act not in anger, but in expectation of a greater good." Mr. Ben Purley-Poor makes the interesting statement that Mr. Lincoln carefully put away the pen which he had used in signing the document, for Mr. Sumner, who had promised it to his friend George Livermore of Cambridge, the author of an interesting work on slavery. It was a steel pen, with a wooden handle, the end of which had been gnawed by Mr. Lincoln, a habit that he had when composing anything that required thought. In response to a request of the ladies in charge of the Northwestern Fair for the Sanitary Commission, which was held in Chicago in the autumn of 1863, Lincoln conveyed to them the original draft of the proclamation, saying, in his note of presentation, "'I had some desire to retain the paper.' but if it shall contribute to the relief or comfort of the soldiers that will be better the document was purchased at the fair by mr thomas b bryan and given by him to the chicago historical society it perished in the great fire of october eighteen seventy one more than a year after the issue of the emancipation proclamation lincoln in writing to a prominent kentucky unionist gave a synopsis of his views and course regarding slavery which is so clear in statement, and so forceful and convincing in logic, that a place must be given it in this chapter. I am naturally anti-slavery. If slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. I cannot remember when I did not so think and feel. And yet I have never understood that the Presidency conferred upon me an unrestricted right to act officially upon this judgment and feeling. It was in the oath I took that I would to the best of my ability preserve, protect and defend the constitution of the United States. I could not take the office without taking the oath. Nor was it in my nor was it my view that I might take an oath to get power and break the oath in using the power. I understood too that in ordinary civil administration this oath even forbade me to practically indulge my primary abstract judgment on the moral question of slavery. I had publicly declared this many times, and in many ways, and I aver that, to this day, I have done no official act in mere deference to my abstract judgment and feeling on slavery. I did understand, however, that my oath to preserve the Constitution, to the best of my ability, imposed upon me the duty of preserving, by every indispensable means, that government, that nation of which that Constitution was the organic law. Was it possible to lose the nation and yet preserve the Constitution? By general law, life and limb must be protected, yet often a limb must be amputated to save a life. But a life is never wisely given to save a limb. I felt that measures otherwise unconstitutional might become lawful, by becoming indispensable to the preservation of the Constitution, through the preservation of the nation right or wrong, I assumed this ground, and now avow it. I could not feel that, to the best of my ability, I had even tried to preserve the Constitution if, to save slavery, or any minor matter, I should permit the wreck of government, country, and Constitution altogether. When early in the war General Fremont attempted military emancipation, I forbade it, because I did not then think it an indispensable necessity. When a little later General Cameron, then Secretary of War, suggested the arming of the blacks, I objected, because I did not yet think it an indispensable necessity. When still later General Hunter attempted military emancipation, I again forbade it, because I did not yet think the indispensable necessity had come. When, in March and May and July, 1862, i made earnest and successive appeals to the border states to favor compensated emancipation i believed the indispensable necessity for military emancipation and arming the blacks would come unless averted by that measure they declined the proposition and i was in my best judgment driven to the alternative of either surrendering the union and with it the constitution or of laying strong hand upon the colored element I chose the latter. In choosing it, I hoped for greater gain than loss. But of this I was not entirely confident. More than a year of trial now shows no loss by it, in our foreign relations, none in our home popular sentiment, none in our white military force, no loss of it anyhow or anywhere. On the contrary, it shows a gain of quite a hundred and thirty thousand soldiers, seamen, and labourers. These are palpable facts, about which as facts there can be no cavilling. We have the men, and as we could not have had them without the measure. And now let any Union man who complains of the measure test himself by writing down in one line that he is for subduing the rebellion by force of arms, and in the next that he is for taking three hundred and thirty thousand men from the Union side, and placing them where they would be but for the measure he condemns. If he cannot face his case so stated, it is only because he cannot face the truth. I attempt no compliment to my own sagacity. I claim not to have controlled events, but confess plainly that events have controlled me. Now, at the end of three years' struggle, the nation's condition is not what either party, or any man devised or expected. God alone can claim it. Whither it is, tending seems plain. If God now wills the removal of a great wrong, and wills also that we of the north as well as you of the south shall pay fairly for our complicity in that wrong impartial history will find therein new causes to attest and revere the justice and goodness of god yours truly a lincoln end of chapter twenty one c recording by bill borst